Hello, I am Dustin Hendrickson, President and CEO of Mailbox Money. Dustin, welcome. Uh, let everybody know where you are based out of and what is Mailbox Money. Uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and Mailbox Money is just money that shows up monthly or quarterly from you doing no work. It's just passive income that you get. You go out to your mailbox and you grab a check. Okay, so for those that are not quite sure how that works so you invest in real estate deals you yes. have investors and then you send the money yep. in the mailbox correct and the mailbox money technically you can use it if you buy businesses any type of passive income is mailbox money but my preferred form of mailbox money is through real estate and mainly multifamily. and how did you get into the business my parents were very passionate about real estate, but they could never figure out how to pull the trigger. So once I was about 25, 24, I, I wanted to build a house. So I told my mom, like, hey, I'll do all the work. You just back me on the finances. And she was excited. So we built a duplex. I lived in one side. And then we rented out the other side. And then we just snowballed after that. Just kept building more and more. And how many are you invested in real estate all over the country? How many units do you have specific markets that you like? Um, I've never actually done an AM an AUM assets under management because I don't know. I've just never put it together. And I'm so I have a lot of passive investing and I have a lot of have a lot of active investing. So if I just counted my passive units onto my active units, it wouldn't it'd be skewed and that number is kind of skewed. But we, we are all over the country, mainly in the southeast and the upper Midwest. Sioux Falls and Brookings, South Dakota are my two biggest markets where I develop. I passively invest in Phoenix, and then I actively invest in Atlanta and Florida. So actively is you're running the whole deal, and it sounds like a lot of that is actual development. So you'll buy a piece of land and build a property. And for those projects, you have outside investors? Yeah, we have all outside investors. It's not just me. I have partners on everything. So I okay. never want anyone to think I'm running any deal I do. I have very little real estate where it's just me. So I have my, a bunch of partners. We all come in for our, our specialty. Um, we're not developing in Atlanta and Florida yet. Um, we're developing in Sioux Falls and Brookings, getting our processes uh, aligned because I, I'm able to wor work here because I've been developing here forever. So we're scaling up to the 150 unit mark. And then once we get our processes dialed, we're going to start looking in Atlanta and Florida areas along the Gulf Coast too, in Alabama, Mississippi areas. Okay. So I was just trying to differentiate between your active and your passive. Your active is yes. you do have partners, but you are involved in yes. developing the project and managing it. Yes. Passive is you're just investing money, but you yep. will group together other investors. So you're bringing equity not just your own to the deal. Yeah. And I mean, the stuff in Phoenix that I do I actually just refer investors if they want to invest there, I don't really get a part of the deal. So I'm not even raising equity. I'm just bringing my own money. So it's just, it's the exact same. I'm treating the exact same as what I would treat one of my investors. So I also invest passively, which makes me aware of how other people are doing things as well. So I can incorporate some of those things into what I do. Yeah. Okay. Investors. So that's a good segue. So you, you probably look at a lot of deals. You see a lot of different things that happen in the country, in the market. And there's probably a clear difference between those that know what they're doing and those that don't. So what kind of things do you see that indicate someone knows what they're doing or indicates that someone doesn't know what they're doing? I would say most times people that know what they're doing, um, you can tell by their experience and their scale level, 
how fast can they scale? How much did they scale? Um, and then, uh, the scale also is part of like, can they handle that stress or not? Cause some, some are really good investors, but they're just smaller time. They don't want to scale and they're still really good investors. They're usually using just their own money or their family's money. They're not raising a bunch of money. So, I mean, you can still be a good, a good operator and not be as, as scaled and as big, but I find the ones that are the most efficient, the ones that network the best, the ones that really know how to partner up, they can grow. Well, is there, scale. is there, is there anything like when you're looking at a deal in terms of operationally, um, financially, are there, are there indicators that you look at there versus, you know, forget the actual person, but the product of what yeah. they, they have. Yeah. I mean, you can look at a pro forma usually and tell how good that these guys are. Now there are some people that, I mean, you still have to look into the person first and foremost, in my opinion, but you can look at the pro forma and tell, see how professional, how, how inexperienced are they from there? And there's just a lot of different numbers that you can look at to see that. I don't, can't really point at a specific number, but you can tell the difference between really sophisticated underwriting and then not as sophisticated. Plus the, the, the better operators point out more things about the deal that aren't really related to the numbers on why there could be more upside. Oh, there could be more upside here. There could be more upside here. They'll know more about the process. They'll just, everything about their verbiage too will sound more experienced. And you almost have to have experience to find that out, you know? Okay. So with the experience, you could tell who can talk the talk and who can't. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah. It's like when you, when you know someone that can talk something where they can talk about it, some people, they can actually say the words, but that you can tell they don't know what they mean. That's the experience part where someone sounds like they can talk the talk, but they don't really understand the words. You know, they're basically learning. They're trying to do it. They're trying to figure it out. Um, and they could be a good operator in the future. Um, and I'd say bad operators are stubborn. That's like the worst thing an operator can be is stubborn. That's right. But it makes you the worst operator. Got it. So I'm, I'm translating into my world. There's a lot of people. When I came into the industry uh, just over four years ago, uh, I was not multifamily before. I was on the office and industrial side. And I got in and I wasn't necessarily given a lot of direction, but I wanted to understand things. And I would start to ask a lot of questions and I didn't necessarily like the answers. And so then I would go dig and get my hands dirty and figure things out for myself. And it, it happens where, where people will say things and just like asking the question, obviously not confrontationally, but like, what do you mean by that? Or what does that mean? Or why is that important? And you could see based on the reaction. So like what you're saying here, like you could tell when people say things that they really believe in. And then when people just say things because, well, that's what everybody says. Yeah. And when you do start asking more questions, then you can really dig into it because anyone can kind of learn how to use buzzwords. And then you just push them a little bit farther and they, they don't really make any sense or they don't understand. They can't really break it down to you anymore. Then that's, that's kind of when you can start to see the inexperience. This is not a knock on brokers, but I think that brokers use a lot of lingo to push, right? They're, they're trying to sell something and they're trying to sell a, yeah. a, a property based on potential value. So they'll use a lot of terms and, um, but they're not operators. And a lot of people, I think, learn the business from brokers because that's who they interact with most when they're trying to acquire more property. And then they're inheriting this knowledge from people who don't operate and don't necessarily know and they're using lingo and then, they're just regurgitating that lingo. Okay. So now that you say that it's a good thing because I mean, break that down a little bit. 
you're basically saying people should go and learn from a developer, not a broker. And this is also, what do you want to be? Do you want to be a broker or do you want to be a developer or an acquirer? Like they're totally different. So you shouldn't be learning the game from a broker unless you want to be a broker. You know, well, I, I, I think that you should be learning from everybody. I mean, depending on what type of developer we've bought from some deals from, from developers where they build, they lease up and then they sell and then they don't have to deal with the property afterwards. So they're not necessarily the expert at long-term management. Um, yeah, they have a, a, a niche that they're, so I, I think you have to be, you know, no pun intended yeah. or pun intended. You have to be curious and you have to want to learn. You should talk to developers. You should long talk to managers. You should talk to brokers just to get their, their take on things. But yes, you could tell when, I mean, we had brokers approach us to sell a property and we don't sell often. And they were giving us this, you know, they were putting together this, this offer and they're like comparing our in-place rents to the asking rents in another, uh, at a comp and they're like why is your in-place lower than their asking rents and it's like that's just a silly question what do you mean why is our in everybody's in-place is going to be lower than asking if you're raising rents but it yeah. doesn't seem to make any sense at all and it, it, you i had a teacher that told me it's better to be thought of as a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt and these brokers yeah. will open their mouth and when you're asking about somebody's asking rents versus their in-place rents you just put your foot in your mouth yeah okay so that i mean I should, I should say that a little differently. Brokers are salespeople. So it's really hard to differentiate when they're trying to give you actual real feedback and when they're trying to sell you something. If you go and talk to an acquisition or, or someone that acquires properties or manages properties or an asset manager or a developer, they're not really trying to sell you anything. So you know most of the time they don't really have a motive. Um I'd say that's the biggest difference. I honestly don't really learn very much from any brokers. So they bring me all kinds of stuff. And they, I mean, I might learn a little bit like, hey, well, this is going to go on here. This is coming up. Like they know what's going on. Like you, you can get like the lay low from them. But the information I get from them is much different. It's not like uh, forward thinking like this is going to happen or you should prepare yourself for this type of stuff or you're going to like, I don't know, even like the rents always, when I look at their rents, they always seem too high with, you know, they're saying, well, you're going to get these rents. And it's always like, man, that's pretty aggressive. Hopefully we can get those rents, you know? So there's always like a, a sales motive behind what they're trying, what they're saying most of the time. Yeah. No. And, 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 and brokers, there's a huge value in the brokers. I mean, transactions are, are primarily driven by the brokers and it's not like leasing an apartment. There's no uh, fair housing. The, the the seller gets to select the buyer. And so you yeah. want to have the relationship with the brokers and, and they are a key player in the ecosystem. But uh, but it doesn't mean they know how to necessarily operate. And you should always question where you're getting information from and, and have a way to validate it and litmus test it and, and figure it out yourself. I do like what you say about developers not understanding how to operate either, because that's very true. Most developers just like to build and, and they want to move on to the next project. They don't want that ha hanging over their head. So they really haven't taken the time to learn how to operate either. So do you have, are you traveling a lot to look at deals or do you just look at them on paper? I mean, with right, right now, it's so easy to throw deals away. So no, most of the deals are, we get serious before we travel. So we have to get pretty serious and we kind of know what the areas are, are already too. So I, I'll travel to go and look, scour a new area. Like if I want to know if we're going to invest in a new area, I go and travel there and check that whole area out prior to, to put anything under contract.
I'm always fascinated with like looking at deals. So we use a, a tool to, for underwriting. And so our director of acquisitions will put all the deals in there and then it spits out, you know, different information that you want. But, you know, wanting to learn, like I go in there and I look at what other, they have their rent rolls, they have their financials. And it, to me, it's always interesting. And, and the longer the history, I mean, we ask for a lot of history when we're looking at deals. There's a lot of interesting things in there. And, and the information is not always, most of the time does not match what you hear in the news, even though there's like, there's no real big news about multifamily, but a lot of the news lately has all just been about occupancy is really high, rents are really high. And when I you you dive into people's financials, there are properties that are really struggling right now. And there are properties that are operated by big companies, public companies that have not been all rosy. I, I do think that real estate is also not that bureaucratic of a game like the bigger you get the harder it is because the trends are so lightning quick and if you can't implement these trends very fast and like see the downturn oh well it's falling off a cliff here quickly let's adjust our rents immediately you can't see that kind of stuff coming then your properties are not going to be full that's one the huge advantage that we have is that we're i'm I'm really nimble yeah real agile nimble and we can adjust things Plus, all of our stuff is new development, so people like our product, which helps a lot. You, you don't have to sell quite as much when you have a desirable product. Okay, so the way we, we wrap up here is uh, some curious questions. What is a, a habit of yours? Uh, the best business habit is that I don't uh, participate in business if I'm not on a really good mindset. So if I'm in the gutter, down low, depressed, whatever you want to call it, I do not. I limit communication because i don't want that to rub off on someone i don't want me having a bad day to ruin a relationship that i worked on for a long time um and so just always being a really chill relaxed upbringing like i want to lift everyone's spirit i never want to bring anyone down so i got to make sure i'm always operating at a super high level or if i'm not i need to pull myself out of that that the the ecosystem is that something you always had or did that develop no i yeah, I've learned it in the last two years. Basically, increasing your mental game is where all your wins come from. So, and most everything comes from EQ. So, it's about how, when you scale, anyways, once you scale and you start having to manage people, it's all about EQ. And you need to get every single person to do something for you. So, you want, you always want them, you always want to be respected and you want to know how to communicate with people as well as you can. And you, enthusiasm is one of the easiest ways to communicate your message to someone for them to actually do your, what you want them to do. What's a book recommendation? Um, I'm going to have to go with brain rules by John Medina, because that's the first book I read where they actually are like, showed you with science that you can change your brain and you can change the way you think and you can change your habits. So like, you say you change your brain, you're like your, your mindset, physical brain. No, no, no. Physical. Your brain is elastic. So you have these habits and they're like highways grooved into your brain. Well, you can change that. It's Is that neuroplasticity? Yeah, neuroplasticity. So your brain can change. It can actually change and it can continue to change and develop. So you have a bad habit. You can eliminate that bad habit. You have depression. You can eliminate depression. What's the you name can of the book? do it. Brain Rules by John Medina. You can change the way you think. So people think that all these traits, you own, you have these traits and they'll always be with you. Well, sort of, they're in your subconscious, but you can remove them. It's just a lot of work. 
a lot of work because you've been working on your brain for however many years you've been alive. Well, now you start working on it in a positive way. It takes a while, but it can be done. It can rewire your whole system. I'm intrigued. Um, last one is what do you think is your competitive advantage? Um, well, I'm just naturally talented in information. Uh, I can consume a lot of information and like comprehend it very quick. But then I also have persistence. You just, if you, if I think I can still do it, no one else can tell me I can't. Then I also have uh, enthusiasm. Like I, and I have a lot of just natural energy, but I work on that too. And so like people get tired after work. I don't get tired till like a way late in the night in the evening. I just never get tired. So I have a massive advantage. Most people can't keep up with me physically, just moving around and like staying upbeat, staying positive. Like all that takes a lot of energy. And I have more energy than most people in that, like the, that kind of energy. With no caffeine? No, I don't need no caffeine, nothing. And you exercise? Yeah, I exercise. Daily? Yeah. I don't like go and work out to work out. Though. I just move around a lot. I just get on my bike. I do push-ups. I play basketball. You're active. I walk a lot. Yeah, I'm super active, just naturally moving all the time. So I, that's just an advantage that almost no one has. They just do you have can't a unique diet? Keep. No, it's just, I don't know. It's just like some God gave me that I just have this natural flowing energy most all the time. Do you sleep I don't have. I do fast. I do fast. Yeah, I sleep amazingly well. But I do, that's like on purpose. And how, I do how fast many hours? in the mornings. Eight, every day, eight hours. Very okay, rarely so you get I get good less sleep. than eight. Yeah, and it's good sleep too. It's full rest. I'll sleep, I'll lay down. People think it's a soup. My brother thinks it's a superpower. I'll lay down and as soon as my head hits the pillow, I'll be sleeping almost no matter what. Could be terrible conditions. I that was all men. Bed. <laughs> I, it's not. Not in my family anyway. Okay. Uh, this is super fun, super interesting. Um, thank you, Dustin. You're welcome. Thank you for having me, Moshe. I appreciate it.